Hello folks and welcome back. This is Simon Ward and you are listening to the High Performance Human Podcast. Normally each week I'm joined by guests to share their knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier and of course improving your triathlon performance. This week though it's one of those solo casts again so it's just me and this is episode three in the tri-series that we've done recently and today I'm going to be looking at training. I'm not going to actually speak about how many hours you should be doing or how you even distribute your training between the three disciplines. More, I will be focused on general principles that enable you to maintain good health and consistent training for the next few months. So let's get cracking with part three. So if you can remember, in the first two podcasts, we looked at sleep recovery and nutrition in the first one, and then mobility and strength in part two. And there will be links to both of those podcasts in the show notes if you haven't heard them yet. Now, the reason I've done things in this particular order is because I feel that sleep recovery and nutrition are the foundation for everything else that you do. If they're poor, then no amount of training is going to give you the results or the fitness that you desire. And then Mobility and strength are next because they help you to develop the framework. So think of yourself as a classic car and you've got a fantastic engine, which most triathletes have, but the body works failing them. So no matter how powerful that engine is, again, you're never going to get the results that you would desire. So I make no apologies for putting mobility and strength in there before we talk about the stuff that you really want to hear, which is what are you going to do with your swim, bike and run training? So before you get excited and think that this is the next thing, let's just set out a few basic principles by which I think that if you adhere to these over the next few months, you'll get to next spring in great shape and ready to use that as a springboard for bouncing into your race-specific training. First off then, health is more important than performance. If you're injured, if you're ill or recovering from illness, if you're taking medication, if you're the sort of person who is constantly under the cosh and you get those little upper respiratory tract infections or even the precursor to one of those, like a little runny nose or a slight cough, that means you're probably not firing on all cylinders. Your health is a little bit compromised and therefore, again, you're never going to be able to achieve the fitness you would like. Now, you might think, well, I've done okay, and that's great if you have, but how much better could you do if you focused a little bit more on putting health first and then performance? And while we're on this subject, and you'll probably think of lots of people not including yourself, of course, because you'd never do that. But you'll probably think of lots of people that you know that turn up to club sessions with a cold. They go running with a little knee injury. They've got a sore back and they're out cycling. Their shoulder hurts and they're still trying to do butterfly sets in the pool. Okay, you'd never do that, would you? But I bet you know lots of people who would. And those people are kidding themselves because they think that because they're training... They're moving forwards and maybe they are slightly, but if they'd backed off a little bit, 
I let those niggles or those little those little health issues clear up, they'd do so much better. So remember, it's not you, is it? It's somebody else. Just saying. Now, next thing is, and we can refer back to those people, listen to your body. If you've got aches and pains, that's usually a sign that you're just doing too much, right? Now, if you're the honest sort of person who can look themselves in the mirror and give themselves a good talking to, you'll probably realize that actually some of the people I was referring to in my previous paragraph might have been you, okay? So please don't shake your head and say, I would never do that because just about everybody I know that's an endurance athlete has done that at least once. Most of them are serial offenders. It's part of the um, part of the process, isn't it? And we can kid ourselves that, yes, you have to risk getting injured and ill sometimes if you want to push on and be as fit as you can be. I'm not sure I agree with that, particularly as this is your hobby and it's not your primary occupation and the one that earns you a living. And if it was, then you definitely wouldn't be firing, um, wanting to carry out your daily occupation always been slightly off colour. So listen to your body. And if it's asking for a rest, give it a rest. You're not going to lose any fitness or gain any weight, if that's your concern, with just a couple of days of backing off. And there'll be times when that's happened to you throughout your triathlon career, no matter how long it is, and you've come back and thought, wow, I feel amazing now I've had a couple of days off. So give yourself that opportunity more often. And particularly when you get older, what you can't afford to do, and I'm experiencing this now, or I'm, am I learning it? No, I know it already because I've learned over the years. Am I experiencing it? No, because I'm not ill or injured at the moment. But what I've learned with age is that you lose fitness quicker if you have time off and it takes longer to get back. So the best thing is not to get ill or injured. And the easiest way to do that is to just insert some little fire breaks in there. So you really want to stay healthy and injury-free because if you do that, and you must have, if I go back through all 225 previous podcasts that I've recorded, probably 25% of them talk about the beauty of consistent training and the amazing gains that you'll get if you can just string together long periods of training uninterrupted. So stay healthy and injury-free. And then build your foundation first. What we talked about earlier. Put health and performance at the bottom. Enhanced by sleep, nutrition and good recovery protocols. Then make yourself resilient and robust so that your body can soak up the training. And I will put a link to Stephen Silas' hierarchy, which is a little pyramid based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which starts off with frequency and volume at the bottom and then doing a little bit of high intensity stuff if you can, and then maybe adding some formal intervals. And these bottom three layers to the pyramid, if you just followed those, will get you the results. This is what Sila calls baking the cake. And to my mind and many other coaches, there are far too many athletes. Of course, that wouldn't be you because you're smart, but there'll be other people you know. There are far too many athletes who are trying to ice the cake and put the candles on it before they've really baked the cake. So just think about that analogy and you know how fond I am of analogies. And in order to, while we're on the cake analogy, in order to make the right cake, you've got to get the basics right, haven't you? You've got to get the ingredients right. You've got to get the right ingredients and you've got to get them in the right quantities. So again, focus on being an efficient runner or an efficient swimmer. Focus on having a good bike fit before 
you think about buying a set of expensive new wheels for your bike or whether you can buy some of those fancy running shoes that give you a 4% gain in time. Just work on the basics of how your body moves efficiently and you'll get that 4%. Yes, it will take a bit more hard work, but the results will be long lasting. And then when you've, again, when you've baked the cake properly, you can add the icing, which is the smart shoes and the fast wheels. And then if you're getting the basics right, you've got to do the work. So I've, I've had my run-ins with people who say, you know, if you're only training 10 hours a week, you can't do this, you can't do that. Again, I, uh, I'm not sure I'd agree entirely with them. But what I think is for everybody is you have to do the work. Now, some people can do 15 hours of work. And I, when I'm talking about work, I'm talking about training. Some people can cope with and have the available time to do 15 hours a week. If you've got five hours a week, then make sure that you are using all five hours to train. We'll come back on to how much training you should be doing in a moment. So do the work. Learn to train by feel. In the last 20 years, there's been a a, a massive upsurge in the number of gadgets and wearables that are available that tell you what's happening to your body when you're at rest, when you're asleep, or while you're training. And they're great. But before those came on the market, there were still people breaking world records and winning gold medals and setting amazing uh, benchmark performances through feel. And even with the proliferation of all of these gadgets, you will find that the majority of the top endurance athletes in any sport will be able to tell you with a great deal of accuracy how hard they're working at any given time without having to look at a power meter, a heart rate monitor, or any other device that tells them. And the scientists will also say that if you are willing to be patient, spend the time learning how to do this properly, rate of perceived exertion is one of the best ways of monitoring how you feel. So learn to do that. Again, you will... I've heard many stories, I'm sure, of people who have been racing and their power meters packed up and then they feel like they're racing blind. What am I supposed to do now? Well... Just keep riding and do it by feel. But my Garmin gave up and uh, I don't know how fast to run. Well, just run. You'll soon find out if it's too hard because you won't be able to keep it going. And the other principle I want to introduce is the one of polarized training. Trying to avoid that black hole in the middle. The no man's land. The death zone. Whatever you like to call it. Try and avoid that as much as possible and follow a polarized training program at least for the winter so that's most of your training below the aerobic threshold which is around 75 to 80 percent max heart rate and doing five to ten percent of your training as what's known as high intensity interval training hit now if you're doing 10 hours a week and 60 minutes of that like 10 percent of your volume or 60 minutes in total is spent above 90% effort, that's an awful lot of intensity because most hit sessions will have about, for, for, for the average age group, will have about 15 to 20 minutes of actual work at that intensity. So you'd have to do three or four sessions a week, which is far too many. The 80-20 principle is the same as the 90-10 or the 95-5, to 5, 
but it's based on the number of sessions that you actually do. So if you're doing 10 sessions in a week, two of them should be hit. So if you're doing swim, bike and run, you might have two out of those three. I'd say probably on most weeks, swim and a bike because they're the ones that take less out of your body. So, but mostly polarized. There will be some threshold work in there. If you live in Yorkshire, and, you, and particularly in the west part of Yorkshire in the Pennines, if you live in the Peak District in Scotland, if you live around Dartmoor, Exmoor, if you live in Wales in the hilly areas, then you're going to go up hills. You'll probably end up in the threshold by accident. So you don't need to plan threshold tra- training. Equally, if you're happy to do cross-country races or cyclocross races during the winter, you're probably going to be running at threshold there. So no need to include that sort of training. So those are your basic principles. I'm sure there are a few more. If I've missed any out, please drop me a line and tell me. The next question is, what's your goal? So before we talk about how much training you should be doing, what is your goal? This is very much, I believe very much in an athlete-centered program. Okay, so it's not for the coach to decide what training you should be doing. The training is based on you, on your strengths and weaknesses, on how much time you have available on a consistent basis and at least for for your first um, thought, what your goal race is for 2022. However, I would encourage you to think beyond 2022. If you want to get an age group vest for Great Britain, for instance, at whatever distance, but you're a bit of a way off, you probably aren't going to make the leap up to a podium finisher next year So maybe you need to be building for 2023 or beyond that. Maybe you know that the World Championships for a particular discipline is coming to your particular country or your area in 2024 and you really want to qualify for that. And so now you've got two and a half years to prepare. This is a bit like athletes who are aiming to go to the Olympics, isn't it? They'd have to be already near the qualification process in the year leading up to the Olympics, to be sure. But for some of those folks, they'll be working at it for four or five years. So if that's you and you know that in order to achieve your goals, you really need to be a stronger cyclist, then maybe you need 18 months to build up. So don't just limit yourself to planning for 2022. Maybe think a bit beyond that and accept that some of your results might be a little below what you want next year, but that's because you've been focusing on one particular aspect. Your strengths and weaknesses, we, should, we shouldn't just focus on weaknesses to bring them up. You should consider your strengths as well and keep building on those. But it might mean skewing your training a little bit to improve your swimming, for example, if that's your weakness or if that's where you have anxieties. Now, as a coach, what am I expecting of you as an athlete? What are my goals for you? Well, mine would be that this next block of time provides the foundation for your 2022 season. So I'm not expecting you to be super fit in February. What I want is you to get through the winter being generally fit because this period is known as general conditioning. We're sort of preparing to train, okay? Or and maybe we're training to train. So we're getting ready to adapt and absorb the training so that we can can train to race in the next block of training, which will come in the lead up to your event. And maybe even then now we are preparing to train and then in the first two months of your race specific program we're training to train and then in the final six to eight weeks of your race specific program we're training to race 
And I also would like you to be consistent. Precision Nutrition did some great research. It was based around people who were trying to lose weight. And a lot of people think that if you're not perfect, then you shouldn't bother. But their research showed that for people who are interested in body composition changes, body transformations, losing weight, even if you were 50% consistent with your plan, you got results. And the majority of people actually fall into the realm of sort of between 50 and 80% consistent. And I would say that's pretty similar in triathlon. There are very few people who have a job and have a family that can be 100% consistent all the time. There are some people who have their lives so well organized and dialed in that they can be 90% consistent. But the majority of people are probably between that 50 to 80% consistent. And even if you can do that, you will keep moving towards your goals. So please don't be don't be too concerned if you're aiming for perfection, not achieving it. So be consistent. So the next question you should you might be asking me or you might be asking yourself is how much training should I be doing? And the typical coach's answer, if I gave you a few seconds and asked you to answer this, you'd probably say, my answer would be it depends. And that's exactly right, because everybody that's listening to this podcast and planning their training has a different set of circumstances. So the answer would vary from person to person. But there are some ways in which you can work out how much training is right for you. Firstly, Look at what you were consistently able to complete for the same period in the past. Now, the the COVID pandemic times might not be a good reflection because you might have been furloughed and had more time on your hands. You might have been working on the front line and had less time on your hands. Um, So I wouldn't uh, wouldn't necessarily rely on that figure, but you could go back to 2019 and 2018 and take the period from, say, the beginning of November through to the end of March and see how many hours you were able to complete then. You could take two years and get the average. That will give you a pretty good starting point. Let's say it was eight hours. If you're aiming for 12 hours, I would suggest you think long and hard about how your life has changed. There are very few people with whom have changes in life circumstances that enable them to do 50% more training. Sure, if you sell your business and you're not working, you retire and you don't have to go to work. That's great. Sorry if you're unemployed and you've got more time on your hands, um, but I would imagine that you'd probably be spending your time looking for a job rather than out training. But, you know, if if you've had something life-changing in a good way that's enabled you to have more time to train, that's great. But very few people are able to hugely increase the amount of hours. So get a good guide from an average of previous years. Now, you you may also have had some life circumstances that have changed, which means that you can commit less time. So that figure would be that we just talked about would be a start point. Then you need to look at how much time can you consistently commit. So the easiest way to work this out is to just fill in a time diary, right? How you spend your days and what time you really have available for training. Because you have to consider sleep. That's the first thing we need. And let's say you should be aiming for eight hours in bed every night. That's a third of your time. If you are going to work, 
that might be an average of eight hours a day, but then you've got to factor in commuting. If you're still going into the office, you've got to factor in traveling. Maybe you're giving the kids a lift to school. Okay. You need to factor in food, buying it, preparing it, eating it. You need to factor in all those daily bodily admin functions that you need to perform. What about spending time with your friends and family? So do an audit of your time. And again, that will give you a, a, a figure. And now you're starting to triangulate. And then I'd like you to think about what you're preparing for. If you're doing a sprint distance triathlon, maybe you need less training for somebody who's training for Ironman. If you can only do six hours a week and you've signed up for an Ironman, I'm not, sh- I'm not saying that you won't be able to finish, but I'm saying that you are giving yourself a huge challenge and that maybe you could reassess what races you're doing. And then finally, what's your sweet spot? You've probably worked out over the years that if you do 10 hours a week, you feel great, you're in good shape and you can get on with your life comfortably. And if you do 12 to 13 hours, then things start to feel a little stretched. You don't spend as much time with your friends or family. You're tired. You're not recovering from stuff. So have a good think about what your sweet spot is. All right, let's get to the... uh, Let's get down some nuts and bolts then on each of the three disciplines. So with the swim, here are some basic principles. And again, I'm not going to tell you how much you should be swimming, biking and running each week. Although if you wanted a guide, I would say if you have of your available time a week, okay, I would say at least 10% of that time needs to be devoted to mobility and strength. I would say probably 25% of that time needs to be devoted to the swim. I would say 45% of that time needs to be devoted to the bike. That doesn't give us much left, does it? That gives us 90% already. That gives us 80% already. So that's 20% for the run. So actually, I think we need to get an extra. We need to... Spend 20% of your time on the swim, 40% on the bike, and 25% running. That's for somebody who's fairly evenly talented, if you like, or skilled across those three disciplines. If you are a comparatively weak swimmer or a comparatively weak runner, then you might need to up those. But bear in mind that running is the one where you get injured most, so you've uh, you've got to consider how much volume you can actually do before you start to blow a fuse. But with the swim... Things that are important. Number one, understand your technical flaws. So first, get yourself videoed under the water, from in front, from the side, from behind, and from above, out of the water. Have a look at your stroke. If you don't understand what you're looking at, get a coach with experience to have a look at the video with you. Understand what your technical flaws are. It may be as simple as improving your mobility rather than changing your technique. It may need some technical changes, but sometimes you can change one thing and that corrects a whole number of others. But you'll only know that if you get the benefit of a coach having eyes on. And when I talk about eyes on, firstly, they need to look at your video. Secondly, I think it's important to swim in a coach program at least once a week or maybe once every two weeks so that the coach can keep an eye on you and know 
and tell you if you're starting to drift away from what good technique is. Once you understand your technical flaws, uh, on the Grumpy Old Coaches podcast, we talked about swimming drills and how the guys don't really like just drills for the sake of doing drills. And I agree with that. However, I do think drills to improve specific flaws are useful. But there's no point in doing catch-up drill if you've got a good catch and if you need to work on your kicking. Equally, if your catch is poor, then maybe something better than catch-up like doggy paddle or some sculling would improve that better. The whole sort of those drills where you lift your elbow and you touch your thumb to your armpit, that's a great little drill. But if you're doing open water swimming, I'm not sure how much that's relevant to what you want. So find drills that improve your technical flaws. And then work on improving your efficiency. A lot of the swimmers I've seen have a lot of drag. Their legs are kicking in a scissoring motion, which creates lots of bubbles. Their arms smash into the water, creating more bubbles. All of that, all of those bubbles lead to drag. So if you can just reduce the drag, you will increase your speed. And it will probably take less time to do that than it will to improve your fitness to go faster. And often you can start by improving your um, efficiency by working on your body shape in the water. And that's done with dry land work and mobility. Okay, that's something else I speak a lot about in all the podcasts. Swim frequently. If you can get in the pool three times a week, maximize that. Sometimes even 20 minutes is good enough because it's about feel for the water. I much prefer somebody to do three lots of 20 minutes across the week than I would have them do one 60-minute session because then you've got six days when you're not in the water. If you can get in a little more, if you're lucky enough to have a pool, if you live in a building with a pool, if you work next to a gym or you have a pool at work, just even 10 or 15 minutes in there is brilliant. Focus on your kick. There's a lot of triathletes, and again, write to me if you disagree with this. I can send you lots of information to um, argue my point. Kicking is important. Now, I'm not suggesting that you're going to start kicking and you are going to be um, an Olympic kick champion. You're not. But kicking adds so much to your stroke. I'm going to read something from an article which I am going to put into the show notes. Here we go. Uh, Despite the majority of the propulsion in front course swimming coming from arms and shoulders, an additional 10% increase in freestyle swimming velocity is obtained by adding the leg kick. This is largely due to the legs providing relative stability to the rest of the body during the stroke. Therefore, it can be argued that swimming propulsion includes the whole body from the feet to the hand. Right? Remember, swimming is a whole body activity, not just the upper body. The thoracic spine provides stability for rib articulation and mobility for the hip and shoulder roll, trunk mobility, etc. This directly influences the position of the scapula during the initial phase of the catch and during the recovery. Poor lower back, trunk and leg movements and coordination will limit the contribution that the lower body can have on the upper body. The position and roll of the legs during the swim stroke will influence the position of the body and the movement of the arms during front course swimming. The 10% benefit to swim velocity attained from adding legs, which let's say it's not 10%. If you're an Olympic swimmer, you can kick and it adds 10%. That's great. Let's say for you, it adds 2 or 3%. But by adding the legs, you get a greater forward reach in each stroke 
and it reduces the depth of the wrist during the swim stroke and the backward movement of the wrist. So there's a significant role for the legs in enhancing swimming speed due to changes in what's happening with the upper body and that hip movement. It also limits vertical oscillation so you're not bouncing up and down in the water, okay, if you're just using the arms. So there are lots and lots of reasons why it's important for you to include kicking on a regular basis. And you may be groaning. There's one other thing as well. If you want something that's going to be really good for improving your aerobic fitness, just get kicking. You'll be breathing as hard as if you were swimming fast front crawl or butterfly. Other things I would recommend for your winter training, try different strokes. If you can become better at backstroke or butterfly, then that's going to have a positive impact on your swimming. Breaststroke is a little different. I'm not keen on the leg position a lot. I find that hurts my knees. You might find that it hurts yours too, or maybe you're tight in the hips. Um, if you can do the coordination effectively, you might be able to do a butterfly stroke, but maybe don't worry too much about breaststroke, but certainly backstroke and butterfly are worth learning. They're good conditioning strokes, and generally the better swimmers can swim these strokes well. It'll also enable you to have a bit of fun in your training, learning them. And if you can, swim with a group. Sometimes you have to forego the session you want to do to swim with a group, and sometimes it's difficult to swim at your pace. You might feel like you're having to swim a bit harder, and that's where pace control comes in. But there's a, an element of community, of be, belonging to a group that I think we've all recognized during the COVID times. So you might find benefit there. Shared discomfort as well when the session gets hard. Let's get on to the bike. Firstly, I think we all think that having a bike fit is reserved just for our race bike in the summer. It's not. In fact, arguably, at least half of your year's training is going to be on your winter bike. So if it fits badly, if you're scrunched up, if you're reaching too far, if the saddle's too low, too high, if the saddle is sort of slightly twisted or tilted, that's going to have an effect on how your muscles work, how you apply power, how different parts of your body are doing more or less work. And that could have an impact on injuries and loss of mobility. Um, so I would make sure that you get a good bike fit for your winter bike. And then I would include the saddle in there. Go back to my podcast with Daniel Sharder a few months ago where he talked about the importance of the saddle and ha have a look at how your shoes are fitted. If you can get some of those insoles that measure the pressure you're putting across, you might find that the reason for any foot pain you get is down to how you press on the pedals and where the pressure points are. Okay, another point that the grumpy old coaches talked about recently and that I agree with entirely and anybody who says that there are, you know, try and cut out the junk miles. I don't think there is any such thing as junk miles on the bike. All miles are good. If you're commuting to work, you're riding, you're in a fixed position. It's good recovery riding. If your heart rate's 50 to 60%, that's fine. Yeah, if you're doing 20 minutes, that's fine. I can count on both hands people that I know that have commuted to work small amounts every day on top of their bike training and saying, those are some of my best biking years. Okay. 
So there's no such thing as junk miles on the bike. And in that manner, I think, just ride. If you're out on your road bike, that's great. But sometimes you get more fun by being off-road. Gravel riding has grown in popularity. I, I just love riding on the gravel. And, you know, if you listen to the podcasts I've done recently with both Brownlee brothers, they will also tell you that they are a great fan of gravel riding. Alistair in particular absolutely loves it. Um, mountain biking also gravel and mountain biking will help you to build some balance coordination and handling skills that you won't get on the road without the fear of getting knocked off your bike or bumping into a car if you commute to work that's fine choose any bike you like Um, if you want to do things like mountain bike races or cyclocross races during the winter i'm absolutely fine with that they'll give you that threshold work occasionally just ride if you're doing swift sessions that's good by me If you want to do Peloton classes, that's fine. Just make sure the bike setup is the same as your road bike. Um, And talking of indoor riding, I generally work on the basis that um, for shorter sessions, yeah, it's fine. If you have an hour's ride outside plan, do an hour indoors. If you were planning a four-hour ride outdoors, then I would say indoors you can – do two thirds to three quarters. So if it was a four hour ride, anywhere between two and a half to three hours is fine. There's no freewheeling or coasting when you're using Swift, really. So you've got to pedal all the time. Whereas outdoors, if you're on a four hour ride, maybe half an hour of that is just coasting and freewheeling. So it's that is dead time. So I'm, I'm happy with indoor riding, but do remember that there are things you don't get indoors. Um, You don't get the technical skills. You don't learn to descend. Certainly, you don't learn to corner effectively. General balance, riding in a group and dealing with different weather conditions. You know, cornering in the wet or when it's slippy is way different to cornering when it's dry. And you need the confidence to stay upright on your bike. There'd be a reason why some people seem to crash more than others. That might be it. Most of the training will be polarized. As I said before, some threshold if you're doing swift races, if you're doing cyclocross events, if you're doing winter time trials, or if you're riding on hilly routes, you will be in your threshold zone. I don't think you need to plan too much threshold in your, in your winter training unless you live on the flat. And then you might want to occasionally, but I would say you get most of what you're doing from riding regularly and doing the occasional hit session. Okay, let's talk about running. Again, running. Running and swimming are the two disciplines where technique and posture and body shape are most critical. Yes, drag is created on the bike as well. And most of the drag is created by the rider. So being mobile, being able to get into a slippery position on the bike is important, which is why I keep coming back to mobility. On the run, technique's important. But again, if you're going to do drills, do them for the right reason. Posture is really important. Please listen to the podcast I did with Shane Benzie a few months back. Again, links in the show notes. Also read Shane's book, The Lost Art of Running. He doesn't talk about how to run faster. He talks about all the body position things, where your foot's landing, the position of your hips, standing up tall, hips high, shoulders back, slight bow in the body, forward lean, head looking forwards. Right? Those are his, those are his technique training points not to do with different um, leg movements not saying they're wrong just what Shane prefers so 
Think about technique and posture. If you look all kinked up and you're trying to run fast, you'll be losing some of that energy just because your body's not functioning efficiently. Shane thinks it's all down to fascia and the natural elasticity that that creates within the body. So if the fa- if the body's not in tension, then you're not going to get that natural elasticity and therefore you're going to lose energy. In order to be able to run regularly and, and in running, being consistent is perhaps more important than it is in, may- well, maybe as important as in swimming. Um, we need to avoid injuries. 70 to 80% of triathlon injuries come from running. And most of those come in the lower limb. They're not necessarily caused by weakness in the lower limb, but they happen below the knee. So it's the knee, calf, ankle, Achilles, foot. So you need to build a resilient frame, which is where your mobility and strength work comes in. And then good technique. Some of my other guests, Malcolm Brown particularly, said it's important to just enjoy running. I think Shane Benzie talks about that as well. Just relish the thought of going running. When I see people out running, very few of them have a smile. Most of them have a grimace. Most of them look like it's a chore that they're just trying to get through to facilitate something else in their life, like uh, feeling good about themselves or maybe just being able to eat a bit more cake. I very rarely see people uh, appear to be enjoying their running. So if you're one of them, think about smiling. There might be a reason why Chrissy Wellington, Natasha Badman and Lucy Gossage won so many Ironman races. They're always smiling, aren't they? Maybe that's their secret. So enjoy running. Relish running. Relish running without gadgets. Learn to run by feel, going back to what I said earlier. You should know by now what's hard. If you're seeing stars and feeling a little dizzy, you're probably in the red zone. That's above your threshold. If you're feeling quite nice and comfortable, like you could go on all day, that's in the below the threshold. That's the cool zone. That's the guilty zone because you feel like you could be running a bit harder. If you're sort of feeling like you're going kind of hard, that's the area actually we want to avoid because kind of hard just gets you kind of fit. I know you've heard me say that before. It's true. So learn how to run by feel. One of the best games I have that I, that I do quite a lot is to, is to keep my watch covered up. So I, if I'm wearing a long sleeve shirt or a running jacket, I keep the watch covered up. If I'm wearing a T-shirt, I, uh, I put it in my back pocket or something. And... So it's measure, it's capturing all the data, but I run by feel. And then when I get home, it, it, it's interesting and fun, if you like, to see how close you were to what you thought you were doing. You might be surprised. Try it. So we need to learn pace control. We need to learn how to feel like we're running slowly. It might not be that slow. It'll feel like we're slow. That might be because you always run too fast. And particularly if you're doing long distance races, and when you come back and think, oh God, that was so slow. I was having to run at six and a half minutes per mile. Oh, sorry. That's, that's quite brisk, isn't it? You come back and think, I was having to run at six and a half minutes per kilometer. And then you look at the time for your last half or full distance triathlon and see that actually your race pace was nearly five hours and you were, that was seven minutes per mile. So the pace you've been running at is faster than your race pace. Seems like perfect training to me. And then I would ask yourself, how fast do you really need to run? So back to that long distance triathlon. If you're aiming to run a four hour marathon, that's probably around nine minutes per mile pace. Five, 
30 per kilometre pace. Do you need to be running at four minutes per kilometre? I mean, you need some fitness, but maybe you need to become efficient at those slower paces so you can keep them up for longer. So think about what your ultimate goal is. Finally, if you want to stay injury free, change the surfaces you run on. I prefer to do most of my running off road. Occasionally I'll run on the tarmac, but not very often. I like to run in the woods. Yes, there's a risk of turning your ankle on a tree route, particularly at the moment when they're all covered in leaves. There's a risk of slipping. You might have to watch your footing and go a little slower. But the constantly changing terrain causes your body to change with it, and that helps to build up some strength and balance. And I think most most of the top runners, pure runners, will run off-road a lot of the time. So that's it. See, I didn't really talk about how to make up those sessions. I didn't really talk much about how much volume, what's the length of your longest run. Um, there's some more basic things. This is, this is a bit like the recipe for getting the cake started properly. If you can do all of those things I've been talking about and do them consistently for three months, then you can talk about what's the length of your longest run. Just for interest, by the way, I would say that in the winter, you probably don't need to be riding more than th- three and a half to four hours as long as you're doing some other riding during the week that that's as long as you need to ride even if you're doing Ironman next year plenty of time for long rides in the summer and long running I would say unless you've got an early season marathon to be doing max of two hours maybe two and a half if you're a a strong runner with good history nothing more okay let me summarize before we finish number one be smart about training We all like to go faster, but can you make bigger gains by improving the way you move? By being more efficient and streamlined in the water? By using your posture and body position more on the run? Or being more aerodynamic on the bike? It may actually bring quicker gains and bigger gains than just trying to beat yourself up all the time to boost your FTP or your running pace. Ask yourself how much training you can consistently complete and try to find that sweet spot. You'll all find it. You probably already know what it is. Please, please think about consistency versus intensity. I did a blog about this recently. Sometimes if you do a big hero session, big hours, really fast, go and overdo it down the track. It takes you out of the game for two or three more days. So it's compromised, not just the next session, but the next few sessions. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do those, but maybe plan when you're going to do them. So if you've got a super long run to do, maybe do it at the start of a recovery or maybe do it before a recovery week. So you do have some time to back off. The trick is to keep training. So consider consistency versus intensity. If you're an experienced endurance athlete, I will bet my last pound on the fact that your engine is in good condition. So you're cardiovascularly fit but your body work needs attention especially for those of us who are getting older so focus on the body work novice triathletes you probably do need to work on both at the same time okay improving the the performance of the engine and the body and please please if there's one last thing i can ask of all of you is to try and retain an element of fun and play in your training. This is not your job. This is also not the serious end of training. This is general conditioning. This is 
where we just keep fit and build the foundation in readiness for what's to come next year. So if you want to swap out a bike or a run for some indoor rowing, particularly when the weather's bad, if you want to swap out, if you live in an area where you can go cross-country skiing and you want to swap out a run for some cross-country skiing, which the Norwegian athletes and a lot of the Eastern European athletes do very successfully, go right ahead. If you're going surfing for a week, then feel free to swap surfing for a swimming session because paddling on that board and smashing in and out of the waves is just as good a workout. Even if you're out riding or running, have an element of fun. Introduce a few little challenges while you go. You know, just think about ways in which you can just change the rhythm of what you do. So that's it for this week. I will put links to all of the things I've discussed, including some of those papers and podcasts with uh, other guests that I mentioned in the show notes below. Before I go, I would like to say how much I appreciate you listening to this podcast each week. If you're not yet joining in with the conversation, please subscribe for free on iTunes so you never miss an episode. And please, while you're there, please leave a rating and review because apparently that's really good for our rankings in iTunes. And also we have a podcast Facebook page called the High Performance Human Podcast Group. So please go and join that if you would like to. As I say, I appreciate you being here every time you come to listen because I know there's lots of choice out there. Right, that's it. I'll be back in seven days with another great guest. Remember that being a high performance human is a journey, so just stay healthy, stay focused, and keep trying to be a little bit better than yesterday.